John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made. What has been made in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. We welcome Brett. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here today. Mike, thank you for reading the scripture. Um, we're going to be continuing the series, taking us all the way from the front cover of the Bible to the back. And the Bible, it tells the most important story that's ever been written. And Jesus is the subject. And your life and my life, along with all creation, hangs in the balance. And today at last, we come to the critical moment when Jesus arrives on the scene and everything begins to come together. Um, not long ago, there was a story going around about Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. And anytime I hear those names, I always think of Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. And it, it just makes this story even funnier to me. But uh, one day they decided to go on a camping trip. And after a good meal and a, a bottle of uh, wine, they laid down to go to sleep. Several hours later, uh, Holmes woke up and he nudged Watson. He said, Watson, look up into the night sky and tell me what you see. Watson opened his eyes and he says, I see millions and millions of stars. And Watson, or Holmes said, and 
What does that tell you, Watson? And he goes, well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we'll have a beautiful day today. And he goes, why, Holmes? What does it tell you? And Holmes was silent for about 30 seconds. And he goes, Watson, you idiot, someone's stolen our tent. <laughs> I love that story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always get a good, a good laugh of, um, out of it. But isn't that an all too common experience in life, though, that we... We can nail down the details of something and miss something so obvious. I mean, all of our ologies can be up to par, but something so obvious um, can still escape us. And I think this is something that has happened with a very popular Christian image that we see today. And I'm going to draw it for you. This is something that you can see on vehicles, on t-shirts, uh, bracelets. I even know a couple of people that have this, this image uh, tattooed onto their skin. And it, it serves as a witness tool, so I'm not making fun of it, but um, if someone were to ask you, what does this mean? You would typically reply something like, he came, Jesus came into the world, he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and resurrected, he ascended, and then he's coming back. Those five facts are kind of our, our ologies. They're what's considered the basic gospel message that we hear today. But I want to suggest that there is a symbol missing and one that is so crucial that without it, if we were to take this message and put it into the first century context of Jesus, this would have caused little less than an eyebrow raise. It would have had little to no effect. And look again here at this first image in the cross, the missing symbol is in between them. Specifically, it's a horizontal arrow. And this arrow represents his life. That's 33 years right here in between the downward arrow and the cross. That's four gospels wide. And the missing arrow is that he lived. So, I mean, think about it. If, if he only wrote himself into the street-level ex, ex, um, existence of a human life to be murdered, why did he live? Why not just show up on the scene at age 30 to 33 at that point? So I think the most reasonable follow-up question for this would be to ask, if he only came to die, why then did he live? And that's going to be the first of three questions that are going to frame the rest of this message. The first one is, why did he live? Second, why is the arrow missing? And third, what now? So before I do give the answer to the first question, we need to think ourselves back into the environment in which Jesus lived. And the reason we do that is because, as you know, context is very important. Um, to give an example, if I said... It's raining outside. 
or it's going to rain, that could bring about at least three different meanings. If, if it's 100 degrees outside and we have no intention of going out, it doesn't really matter to us. We don't think anything of it. But if I say it's going to rain and your house is currently the next on the path of a raging wildfire, then that could bring about a feeling of hope, of excitement, knowing that possibly your home is going to be saved. Or third, if I said it's going to rain and you're out trying to have a barbecue with your friends and family, it's going to be frustrating. You're going to have to readjust what you're going to do, where you're going to cook. So all that to say that context is um, very important. And the general context or framework in which Jesus and the Jews were living in the first century was this overarching story that they knew included every single person. And I know it's kind of weird to think about because in the 21st century in the modern Western mind, we're very individualistic. We want to pursue our own happiness and kind of leave our own legacy, but they all knew they were in this together. And the story that they lived in was the story of God's saving actions in the past and his promise, his future promises to Israel, which we will discuss momentarily, that had abruptly come to an end um, and they was awaiting its completion. Now, I know this will kind of be of a kind of a weak example, but think of it like this. If you go to a movie, everyone sitting in a the theater is witnessing the same story and the same plot that's taking place on the screen. And then suddenly the screen goes blank. The lights don't come on. Now, everybody knows there are lights because that's what helped you see to get in there in the first place. And everybody knows there's an end to a story, to the story that they were witnessing. But now, no one knows when the lights are going to come on or how the story is going to end. And that's essentially how the Jewish people were living. They were, the, not, they were not the spectators as we would be in a theater. They were actually the people in the story itself. So now what I want to do is go a little bit further down into the fine texture of this environment. And all of this is to allow the answer for the question one to have the impact it's supposed to have. Um, the Jewish people had two main symbols of their faith, the first being the Torah, being the first five books of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament as a whole, and uh, the temple. And the temple was the literal place where heaven and earth joined together in one specific location. Um, this is where the people came to share a meal with God, to pre prepare sacrifices, to worship, um, to do essentially everything that was of vital importance to them. It was, the temple was the heart of Judaism. So, temple and Torah, these are the two main distinguishing features um, between them and the Greco-Roman world that surrounded the Jewish people. And this mixed society that they lived in was socially, religiously, and politically charged. There was actually a, during the time that Jesus was on the scene, there was a violent resistance of the Jewish people that was, uh, that was brewing, and the temple was the focal point for these zealous nationalists that were wanting to revolt and push back against Rome. They were ready for this story to find a completion, and they were essentially trying to force the hand. Um, another part of the fine texture of these people was, obviously, as I mentioned, God's promises, one of them being his promise to restore the land to them. Um, they were living under this foreign oppression, and they took his promise to restore the land to mean that he was going to drive the Romans out. He was going to crush them and scatter them. And then at that point, whenever that event happened, they knew that his promises were, were going to begin to take place. And these are the prom some of the promises 
that they were expecting is that his kingdom would arrive, that he would be enthroned as king, the exile in which they were living would be over because they understood it to be like that of Pharaoh. Um, so they were waiting for Pharaoh essentially to be overthrown, but it was the Romans this time. Uh, the covenant they failed to keep would be restored. And now the Gentiles would be able to flock to the temple in Jerusalem and be part of this family and to worship God. So they were awaiting that final decisive action of him. So with that being said, we're going to ask the question, what is the gospel that Jesus himself preached? He said to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that is why he lived, is to launch the kingdom of God, to launch new creation. And given the readiness of all the people in this environment to find a solution to the end of the story, it makes perfect historical sense for why there were ready and willing followers. Uh, in fact, there were um, two or three known recorded Messiah-like figures that had risen up. Um, one named uh, Simon Bar Kokhba. Uh, he claimed to be the Messiah, the one through which Israel's story would find its completion, but he was following that violent way of resistance. And all of these these would-be messiahs and revolutionaries that like had arisen, they eventually were snuffed out by Rome. Um, the Romans would look at them and say, look, you want to be high and lifted up for people to follow you? Well, what they would do is crucify you. And then you would be high and lifted up on a cross for, to be mocked at. So all that to say, it makes sense why these people were ready and willing to follow Jesus. So whenever he arrived and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, um, it was very significant. And what I want to do now is look at the word um, repent for, for this to make sense. Um, I think it's a word that we've taken over the past several hundred years, and we've, we've boiled it down to something that has little or no substance to it. Uh, repentance didn't mean to feel sorry for some wrongdoing. It was far more involving than that. Repentance means to give up your way of doing things and trust my way. Um, if you've heard of the Jewish historian Josephus, he was alive during the time that the Gospels were actually being written and put down into their final form. He actually used the word or the phrase, repent and believe in me. And what he was saying was, he was talking with somebody that um, they were having a conflict. And the other person was trying to go about finding a solution one way, and it was causing a lot of problems. So Josephus confronted him and he said, repent. He says, give up your way of trying to do what you're trying to do and find the solution to this and trust me that my way is a lot better and we're going to get the solution that we want to get to. And that is what Jesus was saying when he arrived on the scene. He was saying repent. He was saying give up your way of being Israel, of trying to find the end of the story your way by this violent resistance. He said rather take up my way of peace, follow me, learn from me, learn the way of self-giving love. So any Jew that would have heard this message of the kingdom would have some kind of understanding of what was going on when Jesus said this. The great ending for which Israel was longing for was about to come to completion. The, the lights were about to come on. But Jesus was doing something that was very unique and very different than what all the other messiahs were doing. He didn't reject the beliefs of Israel or Israel itself, but he redefined the meaning and the terms and stated that this great narrative was now coming to completion in and through his ministry very quickly. He was, he was picking up all the threads of this, this tattered and worn out nation and he was weaving them together into this 
unexpected tapestry that was through his life. Um, the symbolism of all of his work throughout the Gospels strongly implied this at every point, that Israel was being redefined in and through him. Uh, for example, whenever Jesus chose the 12 disciples, this wasn't a random number he just picked out of the air. This was to represent the 12 tribes of Israel that were now, instead of being around Israel itself, they were being redefined around him. Uh, another one was, a very important one, was the Passover meal that he had chosen to explain his death that was about to occur. What the people understood during that time was that the Passover meal signified the exodus of the Old Testament. They were looking back to God acting in history to bring them out from under that oppression. Jesus was saying, here, take this meal, eat this, and look forward now to what I'm going to do with you. I'm about to start the new exile and the new exodus. He used parables that were soaked in Old Testament stories and imageries uh, like the Passover because um, he knew the effect that it would have on the people. Um, he said to the Pharisees, he said, look, Moses wrote about me. You, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but yet you refuse to come to me. He says, all of this has been pointing to me. Um, we've already stated like the importance and uh, the centrality of the temple. It was the heart and the center of Judaism. And what Jesus did to the temple is considered by historians the main reason that he was, uh, he was executed. And that is, he confronted the temple. He said that it had become corrupt. It was a sign of oppression to the poorest of Jews in that environment. And if you don't think a symbol is a big deal to confront, think of someone taking down the American flag and stepping on it and spitting on it. It's not just because it's a symbol. It has a rich history of sacrifice and a and deep meaning and history to it. So instead of restoring the temple, the symbol, as most of the Jews were, were saying and expecting, he gave a warning of judgment for it rather than rescue, saying that this would, temple would be utterly destroyed and raised up again. And in saying this, he was putting himself into a very lofty category, which was the expected king. Only the king could announce judgment on the temple, acting on God's behalf. And that's exactly what he did. He used other parables, such as the parable of the stone rejected uh, by the builders that became the cornerstone. He was referencing himself. Um, the parable of the tenants that were sent to the, uh, the vineyard owner's vineyard that were rejected, and finally he sent the son, and the son was killed. Well, the tenants, the people that were sent before the son were the prophets. The son was sent, and then he was killed. After the son is killed, there's no one else to send. All the healings, the, the meals and feedings of Jesus, these were not random or unreflective acts on his, on his part. It was an attempt to merely show that he was a divine, uh, a divine being, like we often read it here in the, in the, in the West, in, in our Western mindset. Uh, what he was showing was that the kingdom was indeed arriving, that, and what was most shocking about the healings and his forgiveness of sins to people was that it was occurring away from the temple. It was, a very, it was very offensive to the Jewish authorities. All of the Gentiles that he was healing was essentially saying that the radical inbringing of the Gentiles is now happening through my ministry. This implied the end of exile, the new exodus. And the Jewish uh, religious authorities who were conservatives of, of their time were looking at him and thinking, who does this guy think he is? He's, he's acting like he's living in a different time. And that is exactly what he was doing. He knew that a new time was coming into being through his ministry, a new creation 
was uh, being launched. So whenever he ate with the sinners and the outcasts, he was symbolically saying that everybody's invited in now. The food restriction laws that were so um, dividing between them and the pagan world was now meaningless. Everybody's invited in. Even his locations that he used for his ministry were geographically symbolic, and he was using them and exploiting them for his own purposes. So it's, it's, it's amazing all that he's, he's done throughout the Gospels. And I know I've painted with a broad brush here, but this is the general environment and context in which Jesus carried out his ministry. So you can see now why the things he was saying and doing, why they were so um, subversive and, and why they were so essential to his upcoming death and resurrection, which we'll speak about briefly um, a little bit. I know Neil, once he comes back, he'll be picking up on the death and resurrection. So, the missing arrow is that he lived, and the reason that he lived is to launch God's kingdom. So we're now at the second question, why is this arrow missing? Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, wrote that three things have happened over the past several hundred years that have been the reason for our modern churches to have forgotten the importance as to why he lived, and as a natural result, we've left out this horizontal arrow. Um, and I promise these are going to sound intimidating, but I will explain them. They will make sense. The first thing we've done is we've Platonized our eschatology. Second, we've moralized humanity. And third, we've paganized salvation. So the gospel we hear today sums these up, and it goes something like this. God created two people, Adam and Eve, and he gave them a moral code to follow. They failed. Uh, God became angry at this, and a sacrifice was needed to appease his wrath. And his wrath was directed towards mankind, but Jesus stepped in and took the wrath for us and allowed us now a way to escape hell. Now that God's wrath is satisfied, we can go to heaven. And since he transferred the credits of Christ to our account, we no longer have to follow this moral code, but we do kind of need to keep tabs on it on the ledger in case if we were to die and there's a balance, you know, we would have to account for that. So the primary failure of humanity has been this crossing of these lines that God has set up. So that's, that's the story that we hear a lot preached, the gospel that we hear. So first, what does it mean that we've Platonized eschatology? These are $1.25 words. They don't mean much. They ain't worth much. Platonized just means that there's been a division. There's been a split made. Um, if you've heard of the philosopher uh, Plato, it comes from his name. And Plato, he believed that the material world was bad. It was good. I mean, it was, it was bad. It was good to escape it. What was good was the immaterial world, world, the spiritual world. That's where you wanted to exist. So whenever you died, this was the ultimate triumph because your body or your spirit would be peeled away from your body at that point. There would be a division. Um, eschatology, that just means the study of the end times. How are things going to end up? So when these two words come together regarding Christianity, what it means is that we've developed a view that when Jesus returns to earth, he's going to snatch us away from our bodies, from the concrete existence in which we live, and we're going to exist in some non-embodied state somewhere. Earth as we know it is going to be essentially thrown in the trash. And as a result of this thinking, heaven and hell have become the two destinations, one to avoid and one to pursue. But the problem is that nowhere in the Gospels do, you, do we see this view held by the early Christians. Based on the story in which they were living, in which they understood, 
they knew the created world and all of created matter was good because God had made it. They understood that he wouldn't abandon it. They had hoped for and understood for him to renew this existence um, of the world in which they lived. They knew that he would return again to dwell with them by joining heaven and earth together. Heaven is just a place where God's will is fully carried out and where he is fully present. So his presence on earth with humanity has always been our proper habitat. It's contrary to popular belief, we're not simply just passing through. Um, So second, what does it mean that we've moralized man? Well, according to the gospel that I just read, um, moral conduct and behavior modification are central to being Christian. God set up these boundaries, we cross them, and now to be holy after we're converted, we've got to keep strict tabs on our actions and everything that we do. Uh, but when we've thought our way back into what the early Christians understood, we can see that the primary failure wasn't a breaking of some arbitrary moral code. The primary failure is a failure of vocation, a calling. There's been a failure to be genuine, a genuine human. It's a failure to worship God. By refusing to worship God, we've rejected the human vocation to be his, and the human vocation is to be his image bearers on earth. And we've turned to idols instead. And it's from idolatry that sin and moral failure has entered. So and I know it's important that we understand that, that worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings with instruments and um, perhaps on special occasions and events. Worship, and I quote, is gazing with delight, gratitude, and love at the Creator God and expressing His praise in wise, articulate speech. And to, be a, to take up the, the true vocation is to be what N.T. Wright calls an angled mirror, that we reflect God's glory out into creation, and then all that we sum up the praise of creation in this wise speech with our actions, sum it up and reflect it back up to God. However, our thoughts, actions, our attitudes, all, and our wants have all been turned towards these uh, like modern idols of power, wealth, um, pers- personal aspirations, self-expression. And, um, these are not literal idols of wood and stone like it would have been in the pagan world, but they're still powerful, maybe more so because we can't immediately see them. And it's, the thing is, all that I just listed that has become idols is not bad in itself. It's just the place we put them in. Uh, third, what does it mean that we've paganized salvation? Um, the story we're used to hearing is that of an angry God demanding satisfaction for the wrong he suffered um, from humanity's failure to keep his code. Someone had to die to appease his wrath. And this is a story, like I said, that has made its home in our minds um, in our messages. Even hymns and contemporary songs sing about his wrath being satisfied. Now, as a side note, I, do, I don't want you to think that I'm not saying that God does not hate evil or wrongdoing. He does. He can't love mankind if he doesn't hate the corruption that has occurred to it. But what I am saying is that this angry being that we've made him out to be is not something you find in the writings of Paul. It's something that you would find in the writings of Plutarch. He's a pagan author. The story of the Bible that we, that we encounter is the story of the creator covenant God that is making good on his promises. He is the God of self-giving love. Israel failed to be the means by which the world would come to know him. They were chosen to be the light of the world, but they failed. And Jesus became that representative of Israel, redefining it around himself to make good on the promises of God. 
Uh, to give an example, whenever Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that was the vocation of Israel, to be the light to the world. So you can see that he, he was saying that essentially, I'm going to be for the world what, what Israel has failed to be. So how can we, how can we correct these things, these three things that we've heard? Um, I would suggest something simple of saying that humankind's main failure has been the failure of vocation to worship God, to think rightly of him. Um, we've become idolatrous, giving all our powers and aspects of ourselves to things that are not him. And genuine humanness was lost. Uh, but God didn't decide to trash the project. The uh, restoring of creation and the bringing together of man and God and man to himself, once again, has always been the intended goal. So now we're at the third and, and final point. Uh, what now? In light of everything that we've covered so far, what now? Um, I think what we have to do is to think through afresh what the life in this message, his life and ultimately resurrection and death um, of Jesus mean in our time. We're to, to take up this restored vocation that Jesus has set in place. I know when I, when I first realized uh, what was happening here, that there was a, a missing symbol, it was, it was very uncomfortable for me um, because I was having to think back through all of my ologies and, um, and put them in the proper place that I was understanding them to be. Because um, you see, with, without this horizontal arrow here that's, that's been missing, none of this would have made sense. Jewish people didn't believe in a dying Messiah, and his death would have meant just that, another failed revolutionary. Um, had he been resurrected, it wouldn't have proved that he was divine. They would have thought maybe this man was special to God and gave him life again. So without his life, none of this would have had any type of impact. Um, I'm not sure if it makes you feel uncomfortable as well hearing this or kind of dislodged or out of place, but you know, that's, that's okay. Um, and I think the main reason is obviously because it's, we're confronting something that is making us shift around what has been some kind of uh, core ideas and beliefs. But if this is true, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. It's, it's best that we adjust ourselves to reality. And uh, reality, as Dallas Willard once said, is what you bump up against when you're wrong. <laughs> um, so in order to take up our place in this story, to take up that vocation that Jesus has restored, the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to be gripped with the reality of the kingdom and the creation that he has launched. Um, we need to understand that ever since that first Easter, the world is no longer the same place. God has acted decisively in history, and all that Jesus taught of himself, of God, and creation, of the fine and coarse texture of reality, is as he says it is. And knowing that Jesus has redefined the ending, how things are going to come together, is, is vital to, what, to, our, to our calling. We know that it's not the abandoning of earth, but it's going to be the renewal of earth and heaven as they come together. Our physical bodies now that we have will be like Jesus' resurrected body that he still has. It'll be incorruptible. When Isaiah says we will run and not grow faint, those aren't just pretty words. That's actually going to happen. Can you imagine how many marathons you can run? Uh, Paul's, oh, sorry. Paul stressed the um, importance 
living now in the present, how it's, how it's going to be in the end. And he gave the example of a seed. A seed has a continuity to it and a discontinuity between what it becomes. You plant a tomato seed, it becomes a tomato, but the seed is not the tomato itself. But it's from the seed that the, that the tomato comes to be, and that's exactly what it's going to be like with our current bodies. It's not going to be the same thing, but it's from our bodies that we will have that body like Jesus, the resurrected one. So, another part of the kingdom that is to grip us is the fact that physical death has been defeated itself. And uh, death has always been seen as the ultimate of evils. It's the intruder. It's the disruption of the peaceful order, um, what's called shalom in scripture, the, the perfect peace. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the prototype for what it will be like. It's the affirmation that the physical reality that in which we live is good. So now we're going to get to more of the practical side of things, the practical application. And please know that everything that I say from here going forward is regarding effort, practice, and all of these things. It's, it's all within the framework of God's grace. Second um, Peter 1 uh, verses 2 through 11, they, it makes this clear. If you read it, verses 1 through 4 shows the divine initiative and action of God taking place. As a result, our response is to take up our responsibility and to participate in what he's done in verses 5 through 7. And grace is not simply unmerited favor. It's God acting in our lives to accomplish what we can accomplish on our own. Think of it like gravity. Gravity is not going to make you walk, but whenever you form the intention and actually do so, it's going to be there securing your efforts. So how do we actually begin this? How do we actually begin to take up our vocation? Well, first, after we've been gripped with this reality of the kingdom, um, it's important that we first turn back to God what we've turned away from him, and that's our minds. Romans 12.2, Paul wrote that the way to be transformed is by the renewing of the mind. Uh, we must first think of God intelligently, dwell upon him, observe the good and beautiful and true things in this world, observe his activity, talk with him about it, just dote on him. This is worship. Uh, Paul wrote in detail kind of a way to go about doing this. If you look in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, which I'm going to read to you, it will. he gives a, pretty much a method of how to do this. He says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, meaning your physical members, as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, 
slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen as of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ originally dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So you see here, Paul laid out explicitly that divine lightning doesn't strike us to burn away all the indisciplines and harmful habits that have taken up residence in our bodies. Paul says to put off the old self and put on. This is the idea of taking off clothing. It's an intentional act. It's a well-informed participation in what you're doing and to put on the new. Um, and the purpose of practice, like anything else, is, is to develop a skill or ability that to, uh, do, to be able to do freely what you cannot do by direct effort. So if I wanted to become a uh, water skier, be able to get out there and do tricks and flips freely without really having to think about it, I don't go out there and just start trying. I start training. I start with very small, unheroic steps. And over time, with well-informed intention and action, I will be able to freely do what I couldn't do before because at this point, these habits have taken hold of my body and it's just second nature for me to know what to do when it needs to be done. It's the same with if you wanted to build a house. You don't just go try and build a house. Maybe you start with learning about foundations and then from there you go to lumber, the types of lumber that you need, um, how to square a stud. And eventually over time, if you want to build a house, you are free to do so because all of those abilities are now at home in your body. So the purpose of training like, um, is not to become good at uh, training or practicing, but it's to develop, to develop the ability to freely do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Um, and it's the same with the putting off and the putting on. Uh, our aim is to become genuine human beings, to freely live out the characteristics like Paul listed in Colossians in the scripture that I just read. Um, the first thing he says is that it, it takes some putting off, um, unlearning some things. And uh, one of the first things that I've had to begin to unlearn, which is a, probably a good place for most people, is, is anger, uh, learning how to put it off. It's, it's something that we really have to practice because anger, ultimately, um, there are situations that call for it um, that are appropriate, but anger is mainly whenever our will is crossed. Something happens that we don't want to happen so it's our, it's our skin response. It's right there on the outside. It's the immediate thing we want to do because we want to control the situation and make it come about the way that we want it to. Um, and what I've had to do, one of the first things I've had to practice um, by renewing my mind is to really adjust it to what reality is. And I'll, I'll say something to myself throughout the day like, it's okay if things don't go my way. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I have no lack. And this is not self-deception here. This is my mind being renewed into the truth. And as a natural result over me practicing this, granted within God's grace and his causing the growth, uh, my outward behavior will naturally be transformed over time. Um, 
but what about the putting on? What can you put in place of anger? What about, what about love? Not a sentiment, but a well-reasoned, thought-out devotion to the good of another person. Um, but we can start by seeing them, another, the people around us as they are, on a person-by-person basis. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've done is, I'll say, and this is quoting Dallas Willard, he says that people are unceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. So even if we have feelings of resentment towards somebody, maybe we start with that practice. Um, Robert C. Roberts, which he is a professor at Baylor University, um, said that in regard to emotions like resentment and all this, he says that emotions are concern-based construals, meaning that what we're concerned over and how we view it is going to open us up to a range of all the emotions that come by it. So by saying somebody's an unceasing spiritual being and thinking that way, we're changing our view of them. And by God's help, if we can become concerned over their well-being, saying, look, they have the same genuine, uh, same vocation as us to become the genuine humans again, um, then it's going to be hard to hold resentment against somebody if you're viewing them the way they really are. A couple of practices that Jesus himself took upon himself um, that you'll see a lot throughout Scripture. The first one is solitude. Um, this is more of a practice of abstaining from something. Um, you see him, with, see him withdrawing from crowds to be alone on several occasions. And whenever we practice solitude, um, it's got to be intentional. We've got to make time to do it. Uh, all the external things that are demanding our attention and, and uh, pulling at us are going to be put on hold. And one of the first things that you'll discover is that when you get alone, even if it's for 30 minutes, is how busied and anxious your soul is. So when you do this, don't go into it aiming to do anything, but just go there. And if, if you're experiencing that anxiousness and that busyness, it's okay, just, just be there. You'll learn that God will meet you there, and it's perfectly safe to just be and not have to do anything. Uh, silence is another great practice. Um, typically, it goes hand-in-hand hand with solitude. So get somewhere alone. And if you can, shut off all the artificial sounds that are around you. I know nature is a great place to do this. Just being out in nature um, and and sitting there is very helpful. Um, Like I said, this doesn't have to be a heroic practice. If all you have is 15 to 30 minutes, you can just start there. Um, One practice that I've found that really helped um, renew my mind and transform me is the memorization of Scripture. Not simply just one or two verses, but like whole passages like Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Um, what you'll see, if you, if you do this, if you make it your goal at the end of a week to have something like that memorized, or at the end of two weeks, your devotion time will no longer be 30 minutes, but your whole day will be a devotion time. You'll be taking it with you. If you memorize it, you can think on it, dwell on it, talk with God about it, and you'll notice that your character will begin to change as a natural result of this. Um, I know I've only given a few examples of these things you can practice. Um, if you look back at Colossians and in Second Peter, you can see a list of these things that uh, they say we need to start putting on and putting into place. Um, so I would just say be realistic about yourself. If you're not an angry person, you don't need to put off anger. Uh, just identify what it is that you know is keeping you from living in that kingdom life and becoming a genuine human. And then identify the steps you need to take to put those things off and put on something else in place of it. So, um, in conclusion, to look back at this image more time, what we can say is that 
Jesus wrote himself into the street-level existence of humanity, much like an author would write themselves into their own book. He lived as the true Messiah and representative of Israel, making good on God's promises to um, bring about the new exile. He was executed, overthrowing the powers of evil by letting them have their best shot at him. He was buried and resurrected, being vindicated by God as the true Messiah and King of the world. Then he ascended to the Father, joining together the realm of heaven and earth, and that he will act decisively again in history, bringing everything on earth and everyone back into the original state of existence, as in the Garden of Eden. So whenever he does come back and decides to restore things, if he's, he's taking any suggestions on Louisiana, I would request better temperature, some mountains, possibly no mosquitoes. <laughs> um, I may just have to move somewhere. But when he does recreate it and everything is restored, um, I think we're all going to say this is the best idea or this is the way that it had to be. Um, so whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you are now invited to participate in this great drama of restoring and creating the world in which God created through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. So consider him and think on him. He, have, he invites us to be his apprentice and learn his way of life the way it is to be a genuine human. So, um, do you need to come up, Mike, at this point? Or so if we just pray? Okay, so if you would, um, the, I guess the choir can come up. And uh, then we'll pray and then we'll go into um, some song. So if you would, bow your heads with me. God, I thank you so much for your, your faithfulness to us. And um, I thank you so much for your life, Jesus, that you've shown us how to be a genuine human and that you invite us to take back up that vocation that we lost. And I pray that you just help us to, to remember these things, to think on them, and just guide us into understanding our place now in our work and our world and wherever we are. I ask these things in your name. Amen.